let's make no mistake, listeners. We can knock out 10 dope houses in a week. There's 50 more taking their places. We did it more just for the the rush and also for completing the task, right? It's a mission. When you go out and you're investigating a house and you're attacking a house, it's to complete the mission. But you look at when that happened, it kind of woke me up of like, what am I doing? Why am I still doing this type of work? The last door I kicked in was September of 2016 at 3823 Bonneview. I remember kicking that door and two guys behind it both trying to hold it back one guy's crawling out of the back window and there's a there's one of them dropped a pistol there's like a, a few pounds of weed behind the door and then there's a bunch of crack and xanax and got everything settled and i remember going to jail and i was thinking why am i still doing this but i knew i could it's easy for me to say oh i'm not gonna mess with dope i'm not gonna ch- i'm not gonna chase dope anymore i'll just answer calls i knew i had to take myself i had to remove myself from the streets if i was going to change always in a more efficient way to do anything right i hate the phrase and steve claggett said this too if i had a lighter i would light it when steve said this he hated the old this is the way we've always done it mentality pisses me off when i hear that because it, it it impedes progress i don't know i don't i don't think that way i always try to look at a certain task or a certain program and see if it's being run the most efficient way and then how could it be done better everything can be done better You're listening to the ATO Bridging the Divide podcast, brought to you by the Assisi Officer Foundation. Since 1999, the ATO has given assistance to the first responder community, and now we want to give them a platform to hear their incredible stories. We also want to hear the stories of the many people that support us. Our community is small, but it is strong. We have differences. We don't always agree. And we all make mistakes. But together we can grow. We can heal. And we can learn from those mistakes. And together we can bridge the divide. Welcome ATO listeners. I am amongst some real superheroes here today. Imagine nut cutting tights and elaborate capes and the stage is set. Danny Canetti, Mark Bacon, and Randy are hosting today to put Joe King in the hot seat. We have one missing. Shout out to retired Pat Starr in Colorado. Pat, squeeze your ass into some tights. Today, we soak in the satisfaction of making Joe King uncomfortable. And seriously, is that even possible? (laughs) He has touched each of our careers and lives with his tutelage, wicked intellect, and demented sense of humor. His friendship and meaningful gift of unity reminds us we are a part of something larger than ourselves, and we need that reminder. The founder of this incredible podcast, Joe's Foresight, created a platform that bridges divides with a reassuring sense that it's okay to be human being. Joe King was born and raised here in Dallas. 
He hired on with DPD in 1997 and remained a slick sleeve by choice his entire career. He grinded out the majority of his career at Southeast with a tattered, well-worn uniform, weathered leather gear, and those top two Class A buttons always open. (laughs) 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 Now, Joe is the go-to in the legal unit. His experience and leadership in DPD are second to none. Habitual offenders database, detective training, marijuana site release program, RMS, ATO and Dickey's foundation boards, angel armor ballistic protection, just to name a few. Every single one of us sitting here today, and so many of you listeners have laughed till it hurts, experienced genuine friendship, and are better police officers because of Joe King. Very seldom do we laugh for real. Each one of us can capture those special memories with Joe and are forever thankful. Joe is a comic, superhero, Star Wars nerd. So I took the, line, the following line from Batman Begins since he does own a creepy, full-size replica in his house. <laughs> Here's the quote. If you make yourself more than a man, if you devote yourself to an ideal then you become something else entirely. Legend. Joe King defines legendary. So before we dive off balls deep into Joe and crank up the heat in his Marvel tights, here is what long-term policing partner had to say about Joe King. Joe is the best partner I've ever worked with. I've been retired for five years, and when I look back and think about police work, it's always about Joe and I working together. He is so much more than that, though. He is one of the best people I've been blessed with knowing. He was my best man at Pam and I's wedding. He is one of my best friends. He has the absolute best sense of humor, and most importantly, he has the best heart of anyone I know. I truly love that guy. Thank you, Pat Starr. Each of us, sitting right here, standing in here, can attest to Pat's words. Please welcome seize the unique opportunity to get to know Joe King. Wow. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great way to wrap it up. Yeah. <laughs> I think thank, I need thank a, you all for tuning in. I need a major in English so I can yes. say that. I, Holy smokes. From now on, she's doing all openings. No. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> no. Damn. Wow. Can I get a smoke break now mm-hmm. after that? <laughs> I can't stand up. Those tights are cutting. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so... Mark and I are hosting today. Mark's also on the department. Anything you want to share about that, Mark? Uh, nothing really. Just uh, signed in the narcotics division right now, and uh, I'm glad to be here to talk about Joe and our time together. So I'm looking forward to today. Yeah, so I, I think it's good. We have uh, three people here who know Joe pretty well. So we're just going to start getting into this. Joe, you ready? Yeah, bring it on. Okay, so... I knew you grew up in Dallas. Do you grew up in Oak Cliff? Yep. Okay. I guess maybe explain to us what Oak Cliff was back then in well, the 80s. No, it was, well, yeah, I wish. It was the 70s. Okay. And yeah, so I was born in 74. Oak Cliff back then, I most of my family grew up in West Dallas around Sylvan and, and 30 area. And it's it, it was close to Kessler Park and that area wasn't that bad. And then where I lived off Kernwood and Polk, 
it wasn't bad at all back then. Uh, we lived next door to a dentist. Uh, it's it's like within a couple of miles of Carter High School. If people you know want to have a reference of that, because Carter's the big school over there. And I went to the elementary from kindergarten to third grade at uh, Bertie Alexander, which is still standing. It's shocking that they haven't. It's probably crawling with asbestos, but it's still there. Um, I was the only white kid in class from kindergarten to third grade. So, you know, and actually we were the only white family that lived in that neighborhood at the time. So growing up, race was never really, never really an issue or never really talked about. So you say we, who's we as your family? Um, Yeah, it was my mom, Carmen, uh, my dad, uh, my brother, Stephen, and my younger brother, John. Okay. Yeah. And so any interaction with Dallas police even back then as a young boy or? Uh, I didn't really have, I mean, I always saw the patch. We've had this this iconic patch and uh, badge my whole life. But I I remember seeing them, always respecting them. Um, My mom would always use them as a prop to to terrify me, to keep me in line. Like, oh, see him over there, he's going to come get you Mm -hmm. if you don't. Get your shit straight. Um, but when I was in when I was in sixth grade, I had some interactions with Dallas police. Uh, my cousin and I were playing baseball out in the street, and a squad car came down, and and they started doing like a play by play over the intercom, and I thought that was the coolest <laughs> thing. And I was like, "Damn, I want to, you know, I, I would like to do that." And early on, I knew I wanted to be a cop. My uncle Pete was a Cockrell Hill uh, cop, and I always looked up to him. And his the uniform just looked so smooth, and I don't know, just I always wanted to work in Dallas. But Oak Cliff at the time it was not bad. I mean, I worked at South Central before I went to legal, and Oak Cliff now. I mean, every every other house on the drastically uh, changed. It's, it's a, like a drug house. Yeah, yeah that how that neighborhood's just ravaged. Yeah. Mark Mark told me something that I had forgotten about, and I knew it. You had mentioned it back in the past, but. Uh, Mark, you were mentioning something about an accident he had been through when he was younger. Yeah, so you told me a long time ago about an accident you had and uh, been over to your house a few times and uh, saw the uh, cast that you still have from that. Yeah. Can you kind of describe that? Yeah, well, I lived at 1317 Kernwood. It was over there off Kernwood and Polk, and I was out front of the house playing with – I was four years old, uh, almost five, and I was out playing with a bunch of friends, and I was using – I had a remote control – Star Wars land speeder, right? It went across the street. I went to go get it. My other friends were on the other side of the street. Uh, I was crossing the street again. I got ran over by a car. Broke my femur, knocked me several feet uh, down, you know, rolling down Kernwood. And then broke my femur. I had some other injuries, and I was in traction for a good amount of time. I had my fifth birthday in the hospital. Uh, I got a bunch of pictures of that. and But I got showered with gifts from everybody. So my first cast, um, when I let all the doctors and, and, and all the visitors signed it, and, and I don't know how I kept it all this time, I, there's still like a C-3PO and Luke Skywalker drawing I did in crayon on it. It's kind of half-assed looking, but it's still there. But So I took that with me, and then when I got discharged from the hospital, I had like a half-body cast. So like the, it was like up to the waist, crotchless course and then halfway up the the good leg was cast and then the bad leg was was fully cast and i kind of just had to crawl around uh crawl around the house with that damn thing and then be put in chairs and stuff to eat but yeah that i I, of all the things that i've kept over the years that cast kind of is a reminder 
What about the Land Cruiser or Land Speeder? No, it's gone. I wish I still had it. I'd probably <laughs> no sell kidding. it on eBay. So you're saying four years old and you're chasing a Land Speeder across the street. So Yeah. So the Star Wars comic book thing started already at four years old. Oh, yeah. No, no. Star Wars, I mean, I saw the original Star Wars because um, they kept re-releasing it. I saw it. I can't tell you how many times up there at that theater by Redbird Mall. Uh, they had a United Artists that opened up and then they had an old, damn, um, I can't remember if it's Cinemark or what, but we would go to that all the time. My older brother and I would go to the movies. That was our escape. And, I mean, I even saw – I saw the original Halloween, uh, which was came out in 78, and I was four years old. You know, there was no ratings back then. That parents didn't give a shit. They just – get me out <laughs> – get, get him out of my our hair, <laughs> take him to the movies. I saw the original Halloween and Friday 13th at walked the theater. Walked there by yourself or with your my brother? My brother, yeah. Yeah, yeah we yeah. walked down – walked up the street. Wow. Yeah. So for listeners who don't know, Joe's a huge comic book buff. Like any history all the way back to the 60s and 70s with these comic books and thorough storylines and the offshoot storylines, Joe knows. And he actually has a uh, giant room. Do you still have it? No, no, I did. Our giant room of, (laughs) uh, I guess you'd say, comic book paraphernalia and some movie paraphernalia. Junk basically yeah. yeah and missy said a life-size mannequin yeah it's a life it's a life-size batman that uh six foot and it's got the michael keaton uh costume on it and yeah gotten a lot of use out of that <laughs> right just kidding so at some point you moved to quinlan did you not yeah so my dad died when i was 12 mom died when i was uh 15 but after dad died we moved out to quinlan which growing up in dallas was a is a huge culture shock going from a big city to a rinky dink small town um but i liked it though i liked the small town feel um i moved out there it it was weird the whole seventh grade and eighth grade i did half half the school year in seventh grade in dallas schools and i went to quinlan to finish it off then i came back to dallas for half of eighth grade and then back to uh back to quinlan there was a lot of bouncing around then i did half a a year at sunset high school which is at the time was one of the most gang-ridden um high schools in dallas and it's probably still is we were they were the first to get metal detectors i know that when i was a freshman there and then uh, i moved out to quinlan and i just graduated from quinlan so 12 and 15 you lose mm-hmm. your parents what happened mm-hmm. to your parents uh both of them uh got cancer okay yeah and when your brothers they moved to quinlan with you uh, my older brother steve he was already graduated at the time i think he was only like um 19 oh no he was he's 10 years older than me or he was 10 years older than me okay yeah, my younger brother moved out there too all right i have to tell you a story okay this was uh many years ago i think we were both on the team together new maybe 2010 and i was working an extra job and some lady came up to me and said hey do you know uh joe king he's my cousin I'm like, yeah i actually work with him and we start talking so i i always wondered about paul Paul being your half brother, and so I kind of asked about you know what I haven't pried into Joe's life yet, but what's what's the deal with you know where's the rest of his family or how did he become uh, into Paul's family? And she's all she could say is he got asked Joe. <laughs> yeah, so Paul Smith, he's a DPS intelligence lieutenant, and he and I played high school football together at at, um, at um, Quinlan. And when my mom passed away, I was really I was kind of in between of where, where I was going to live. Uh, I was going to maybe move, have to move back to Dallas, which I really didn't want to do because I had so many friends and I was doing uh, well in sports and actually for once doing well in school. 
um, I ended up moving in with, well, Paul's, I, I was telling basically everybody, hey, I may have to move. Paul went to talk to his parents, and I didn't know them at all. I just knew Paul. Never met them. They agreed to take me in. So when I was 15, you know, they kind of took me in. Yeah. So, so that he's my, people go, well, is he your older brother or your younger brother? I'm like, well, we're the same age. And they're like, what? Yeah, don't, don't just long story. Yeah, and that's don't the only s- family of yours I've met is Paul. And yeah. That, as far as I know, that's your brother. And yeah, for Paul those, and I are pretty close. Yeah, for those who don't know, uh, his brother Paul is with DPS, Department mm-hmm. of Public Safety for Texas. So two guys in law enforcement. Yeah, he actually, he applied for DPS like, four or five times and wouldn't get a call back and then he had started he got hired by dallas actually and really? and he was they agreed to take him but then dps called and his heart he always wanted to go to become a trooper so he went to uh he went back to uh he went ahead and go to dps i think it worked out for him pretty well so who made law enforcement first you or him i did okay yeah yeah i think that i've got maybe a year and a half or year and a half on him and what year what year was that uh I heard on with DPD and my the academy started in January of '97, and and that's when I um, met our buddy Randy here. So, uh, yeah, but I'd I'd been hired. I was working at Terrell State Hospital, mental hospital, for uh, a couple of years before I got hired on with DPD. And I think I remember taking like a month off, and I can't remember if they had pushed our class back a little bit. It was I was anticipating it start sooner, and I kind of just. I wanted a kind of a month off to reset, and I think they pushed it back. Then I started running out of money because I was poor back then. Mm-hmm. So I started in January 97. What led you then to want to apply to Dallas, please? Well, growing up in Dallas, I always wanted to be a Dallas cop. The And I remember even in, in high school watching that movie JFK, and part of the Warren Commission they had – a Dallas officer up testifying and I remember them talking about Dallas's finest. Mm-hmm. And I remember seeing on the collar, those DPD pins and how just freaking cool they were. And that, and that iconic patch and just always seeing them um, in Dallas and seeing them as a source of people to help. You know, I kind of looked at them in some ways like superheroes, I guess. Yeah. So I, I knew that if I was going to be a cop, I wanted to apply for Dallas. And this is the only department I applied for. Mm-hmm. So 97, you get in the academy, probably quite a bit different academy than we had in the early 2000s even. What, what was it like? Uh, it was, it's eight and a half months. And yes. no, it was fun. I mean, I, Randy and I, were we gravitated towards each other because we were both pranksters and just goofballs and just doing dumb shit. And... Most of the stuff that I did was behind the scene pranks. Like, no one know it was you. Yeah, like yeah. I would do stuff like in between lunch and or you know the break, lunch break. I would go right on the on the the dry erase board, bring your reflective vest to class. And so every, <laughs> I would sit there and watch everybody <laughs> milling in with carrying their reflective vest, and I would just be smiling. Nobody knew where it came from. They just assumed an instructor did it, or it was just. Yeah. I got a lock. I got uh, Salinas' locker combination and terrorized him through the whole six twenty two eight. It still is his. Uh, Nothing, nothing's his combination. changed. I think we all. Yeah, yeah. we've all been uh, victims of some kind of prank. Was this back when it was still at Botman Lake? No, 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 no. Well, it was. It's still in the. Yeah, it's still in the uh, the Redbird Lane. So who who were your class advisor or coordinator? Uh, uh, class coordinator was uh, senior senior corporal Rick Bettis. And he's kind of a legend on the department. Uh, he's got metal valor. He's he's 
God, he was so good, and he really, he really helped set a tone for our class of of somebody we wanted to be like. Just the way he spoke, the way he interacted with folks, and and just he was actually out, sent out to the academy to recover from uh, injuries of getting shot uh, in the stomach and during a family violence call, and he still dragged a lady away from uh, gunfire back then. And just hearing somebody like that, it was just damn, I want to be that guy. And just how eloquent he was. He was so personable and so intelligent and eloquent and just, and also a genuine badass. We always wanted to be like him. Then we had uh, Corporal Easley. Is it Robert? It was Roger Easley. Roger he, was, Easley. he was our class advisor. Uh-huh. Our other class coordinator was Misty Cootie. Misty Cootie, yes. And she's getting ready to retire. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah, but, yeah, Misty, Misty was brand new. I think she, yeah, she was brand new out there and, not quite used to, you know, dealing with. She was real quiet, but she took a lot of keys off of Rick. So she was new out there, and you took full advantage of that, and probably no, I, no, the hell out of her. I did not. I didn't prank her. <laughs> I was, miserable. I was, I was legitimately scared of the staff. I thought that they were gonna, you know, especially. I and, and plus, I didn't want to do anything to embarrass Rick. I mean, I didn't care about embarrassing my classmates I, or embarrassing myself. I didn't give a shit. But, um, you know, Randy and Randy and I, uh, we. We became friends pretty quick, um, and Scott McDonald and Chris Webb, Salinas and uh, Michelle Kinley sit next to me, and I terrorize her the whole, pretty much the whole academy. Hmm. Yeah, she probably hates me. So in the academy, right before you graduate, the instructors come in and they usually give you a list that you write down of the stations you want to go to, in order of preference. And some guys get the stations they want, and lots don't, and they get shipped to wherever. But you you rank them in order for a second, third, or whatever. What was your first pick for a station? My first pick, I, it's it almost pains me to say, North Central was Southwest. Oh well, and and Southeast was my second, but Southwest only because I grew up there and I knew the geography, you know, and I yeah. just it, I just knew I knew Keys, I knew uh, Hampton. I mean, I, I knew somewhat that area. And southeast, I wanted to go there because I lived at the time on the east side of uh, east side of the Metroplex, so that logistically would have been the best place. And it ended up being, you know, I, I am honored to go to the greatest division in the in the city. <laughs> Amen. That's right. Amen. Yeah. So, nineteen ninety-seven, end of ninety-seven. Yeah. Southeast. I'm assuming you hit the ground running. I'm assuming there's a bunch of cohorts running around with you, <laughs> wrecking it up. Like you guys used to do. Yeah. Well, when I when I hired when I got on, there was, you know, my my trainers didn't they, my trainers were, weren't really proactive, but I didn't know any better at the time, sure. right? And then I got all I got on Little T and I uh, partnered up with John Baldez uh, like a week into Little T. And Little T is you have to arrive with like a senior officer for X amount of weeks. I can't remember. I it's been so damn long. I can't remember. I've been. You know, twenty five years like ago, three months now, hey, some such. Yeah, three, but three months you have to ride with a partner after training, and it's kind of like a probationary period. Yeah, and how long had John been on at that time? Oh hell, I'm seven four eight two. He's seven two nine eight. Not right. not long at all. Yeah. I think Maybe. a lot of us that have come through is the same thing. When they say senior officer, you're talking about somebody that's been here six yeah. months longer. Because real senior officers don't want anything to do with you, right? No. So you're you're riding around with someone else who's just as gung ho as you. Well, before I before I, I partnered up with John. um I rode with a couple, like two or three senior officers, and Paul Hinton was one of them. He was just angry, you know. He and he, he like uh, 
he I don't think he cared that I was in the car with him no. and didn't want me to be there and and I never got to drive you know what you know whatever that's fine I didn't know what the hell I was doing and I get with John and we have some uh we have like some pretty good dope arrests right off the bat and John was like hey we work real, pretty well together do you want to partner up I was like hell yeah this is fun you know we started hitting we started messing with some dope houses on Stella there off of Corinth and that's our that's the first drug arrest I ever had was off of uh 1400 1423 Stella and John and I partnered up, and then at the time, at the same time, there was a group of senior officers, uh, kind of led by Klingle Smith, Mark Terry, Del Ball, and Eric Knight, and um, uh, I'm I'm forgetting some people, but they were kind of doing a very aggressive, proactive style of policing in in um, in Southeast, and that's who I learned from. So Mata was also in like I think he's John's class, so he's seventy three hundred, and we all learned from them guys. Mata was right was riding with Joe Moore and, and I was riding with John and then Pat Starr was a class ahead of me. He was riding with uh Menchaca. So we, we all started learning from these older guys. And I don't that I don't that doesn't exist anymore. Like having a group of older veteran officers. Now you have pretty much rookies teaching rookies. But I was so fortunate to get in with a a group of guys and and you know, like, like Misty said in her episode, chasing dope. That that was the funnest thing I've ever done in my career. I, I did it too long. Got a question for you about mm-hmm. that. So uh, for those that don't know, a unique thing about working in a city this large is when you get into this line of work, you can kind of make it what you want it. Um, some people like to do traffic stuff. Some people like to do nothing but answering calls, uh, going to robbery, thing like that. What made you kind of gravitate towards uh, chasing drugs and uh, their narcotics in the city of Dallas? And, and if you can go further and explain for some listeners who may not understand, what proactive policing when you say that? Okay, there's kind of two two types of policing. There's proactive and there's reactive. You know, and, and going call to call, you're, that's more reactive. You're you're responding after a call is put in by a citizen after usually after a crime has already been committed. Okay. Proactive is going out in the hot spots uh, of high crime areas in the city in the southeast. You could just throw a rock up randomly and hit a hot spot of crime-ridden neighborhood, and go out and look for the people that are daily out there terrorizing those neighborhoods. They have guns, they have drugs, they and pretty much every crime in Dallas, all the way up to homicide, is usually there's a nexus that's connected to drugs uh, in in some way. I gravitated towards that because it, it was fun. It was there was a lot of physicality to that job. Getting like Misty talked about getting out in the car on a dead sprint, hopping fences, getting in foot chases, wrestling damn near wrestling people every yeah. other day. Yep. And I used to be very I used to be pretty fast and I enjoyed getting into foot chases there towards the end. Hell I would hurt for two weeks if I if I ran twenty yards after somebody. But it just it felt I was making more of a difference. Um, and I, you know, in that community of, of actually getting bad guys off the streets, as opposed to waiting to, to let them do something and then go and clean up the mess. Mm-hmm. Right. And it was just a lot of fun. And I worked with a good group of people that he'll you know, Misty and, you know, um, Scott and Roger Rudloff and, and Mata. I mean, all those guys we worked. So and Greg Garcia, he's here. He, he's, uh, he's with us today, sitting here mean mugging me and, 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 <laughs> 
Spencer Barons was his partner. He left, went back to Nebraska. We had such a good time. We had such a tight knit group that we literally would. It was fun. It was like a. It was like a a game. You know, like just a cat and mouse game. Like we would literally at nighttime sneak up on our stomachs, crawling through high weeds and into bushes and doing surveillance on a back door of a dope house that literally was like ten or fifteen yards away. Yeah, or sneaking in a vacant house next door and watching. Oh, that happened a lot. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, I had a ride along uh, a buddy from high school, Alan Mason. Shout out, Alan! He, uh, we were in the backyard of a dope house doing surveillance on a house for Scott Bricker and uh, and Pat. Um, and the guy, we didn't realize that the house had surveillance cameras on it, right? And this is back before DVR and all that shit. And he wasn't recording nothing; he was just watching. And the quality was probably grainy back then. Well, he saw somebody lurking around the vacant house next to his dope house, and he ca- he came out in the backyard and uh, and fired a shot at us over there at the vacant house, and they had to like shit, shit, come up, y'all come up, you know. And then they come up, and he throws the gun into the into the um, into the bushes, and then it runs back up in the house, and then you know, yeah, yeah. then, then it, it was it, it was on after that. It unfolds, yeah. yeah. Unfolds. But Alan, That's a good you know, word. and then Alan. To this day, tells a story about people. You would think it was like the Matrix, like we're, this bullet went just by our head, and he's fucking backbending, getting out of the way. But wasn't that close? But it was funny. It's a funny story. So even when I came on as a rookie, you were pointed out as the go-to guy to go for advice on chasing dope, um, and that's your reputation and your character. As I think most people knew you in Southeast. Besides the chasing dope stuff, any critical incidents or big moments at Southeast? Yeah, um, I could talk about chasing dope all day, and I've literally everybody at this table I've got a story with, um, you know, about chasing dope. And I remember Misty and I got in a long ass foot chase several blocks over there off Illinois and Corinth from that Seven Eleven, and you know, um, but there's 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 one thing that I really haven't talked about. I mean, there's there's a few, but I'm trying to get away from the dope chasing stories because they they're all crazy stories in themselves, and we'll get into more of those when you and I work together. Um, Hal Baird, Hal Baird, uh, I believe he had been on eleven years, ten or eleven years, and he was training Mike Jones, and I think I had only been on a couple years. Misty, you were brand new, you know, brand new. yeah. So. He and his part, he and his rookie Mike Jones were going code to cover some officers down Pennsylvania, and a car pulled out on Pennsylvania and clipped their squad car. They lost control, and then the the squad car hit a pole there. And actually, to this day, there's like a plaque up up high up on the on the on the pole there uh, for Hal Baird. Um, Hal was taken to to Baylor, and when Misty and I got on that day, um, he was still alive. Misty. Misty, I don't know if you you probably don't remember this, but me, you, and Amy Ginger actually went to Good Eats that day and had dinner, and then we were talking about it, and and we 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 were getting updates. We thought he was going to survive, so but he didn't. He didn't make it. And one thing I like to do this podcast is is talk about the history of the fallen to give like a a backstory, so they're 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 just not another portrait on the wall. You know, people get some kind of story. Well, this is my story. So I get back to Southeast. And as I walk in, we start getting news that he, he had passed away. And Sergeant Brown, you know Sergeant Brown, uh, he worked a station. He was yeah. a station sergeant for a long time. Renaissance man. Yeah, Renaissance like man. The Renaissance Festivals. Yeah, the yeah. Scarborough Fair. Festival. Yeah, there you go. There you go. Interesting. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, so he's like, 
hey, come with me as soon as I walk in. And I hadn't been on that long, but he knew me just from seeing me around the station. So I go into the conference room and he's got a he's got a paper bag in there, several paper bags, and he pulls out this very tattered DPD class A uniform. Okay. And he lays it out on the on the on the table. And I'm looking at it, I'm going, Holy shit, that's Howell's uniform. And you could see there was blood on the collar on the right side because he because how had some head injuries and it looked like the it and, and i remember there was a rip up the there was cuts up the sleeve right and it's because they you know they cut off his uniform he had the pants too he had the vest the vest was in there and they basically just they transported him and they and they and they they got all that back i guess from baylor or parkland where the hell he went but we we went through we had to go through his the pockets on, you know, like the pockets. I remember them pulling out the whip out book. It was, it had blood on it. And, and the, the blood was, the uniform was stiff. Class A's are pretty stiff anyway, but, you know, dried blood. It was, I mean, it was real stiff. And I just remember looking at this damn uniform. Same one I was wearing, because back then we all wore Class A's. We didn't, we didn't have these Class B pajam- class pajamas. Class C's yeah. or whatever you want to wear. Whatever, yeah, we're, you know, close to blue jeans with a Class A shirt nowadays. But... I, I remember looking at this damn uniform going, fuck, this is the same uniform I'm wearing. And it's beat to hell. And he died in that, you know, while wearing that uniform. So that, you know, then we 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 went through all that. And I remember Reggie Jackson, it was this uh, Sergeant Brown and I standing in that damn conference room. It's a little tiny conference room, no bigger than this one. It's southeast, uh, probably smaller. Reggie Jackson walks in, sees me, and... He sees what we're doing. He's like, nope. He does like about face and walks the hell out. He didn't want no part of that either. Yeah. I didn't want to. I did not want a part of that either. But, you know, I just, Sergeant told me to go in there and help him. So I, we're going through it. He gives me a locker combination and gives me Howell's locker, uh, you know, his locker number. He told me, he gives me, a, he said, get a box and go in there and get everything out of there. Get out, get everything out of his locker. And, you know, so I went through... I had to go through and and go through Howell's locker and take everything out and and there was quite a bit of stuff in there, a lot of copies of DORs. I mean, just a lot of stuff. Um, I just remember thinking afterwards, I was going, man, it it just really was the first time I thought about how finite of the you know this life is, especially how uh, life of an officer can turn on a dime so quickly, you know. So. That was my first taste because, you know, the guys I was working with, we were fearless. We would do stupid shit. Having we would fun. jump yeah. jump into windows and, and kick in doors and rip off bars with our bare hands. Greg, you know, the, you know Mark, we've all, Danny, Misty, Randy, we've all done it, right? Uh, but that, early on in my career, I, I'll never forget that. Just looking at that, just looking at that damn Class A uniform and looking at those that collar with the same DPD pins that that I was talking about earlier, and it had it was blood soaked. It was, it was a very surreal, very sad experience. And it's interesting how what events hit people in a certain way. I mean, a lot of us been through really traumatic things, and it's we just brush it off and keep going, no big deal. Or yeah. we've seen some really horrific things, but then there's just something sometimes in an event that just triggers you in a different way. And I think usually it's the humanity of the situation and. Well, and a turning point too. I mean, of, of of a thought process, and 
yes, I I continued doing crazy and reckless and and dangerous shit after the after that, but that stuck with me, you know. Um, another another uh, you know say critical incident. It was this. I don't know if it was necessarily a critical incident or just a, a shitty experience. The first time I had seen like a John and I entered a call out in the Grove, and I think it come out as a cutting, uh, it or I don't know a shooting or it was I don't know, I can't remember what it was, but it was a code three call. We get out there and um, basically a, a a lady she ended up it was a mother she ended up dipping a, a a few month old baby into a bowl of water, okay, and DFR was already. Uh, they were working on the baby and baby they transported baby ended up dying but i just remember this they were they were trying like the fatty part of the baby's legs you know like the the upper thighs Mm -hmm. just the real chubby chubby muscle you know they were trying to like hold it together because the the baby's meat was like i mean flying off it was like falling off like a like a you know off a bone and this is you know 20 something year old me you know and I, I and thank god i didn't have kids at the time because it probably would have affected me a lot more than it did them yeah. but that image still sticks with me of how just gray the gray the baby's uh flesh was you know we and, my, and john and i transported her to transported her to uh capers and did their thing and she ended up being charged but i think she ended up going to a, a mental hospital though uh i don't think she did she didn't in prison time for that mm. So that one really sticks with me, and it sticks with me now because, because you know, I have a child. Yes. So. Yes. I think all officers can attest to that, that anything dealing with kids is rough, and especially if you have kids or you're a family man. Yeah. It just hits you even more so. Yeah. Dope chasing, having fun all these years at Southeast. You got injured pretty seriously, didn't you? Enough that you had a surgery, or yeah. Well, I've had. I mean, I I remember Scott McDonald and I were chasing a guy off of uh, lead twenty eight hundred uh, lead better, and I jumped a guardrail and broke my ankle. I came back and and, and the first the first X ray didn't realize that uh, they didn't show the the fractured ankle and it ain't coming back. And back then, you just did not want want to miss a day of work. You did not want to take a day off, even if you were off. You had your buddies like. Greg or Scott or somebody calling and saying, hey, we got in the house over on Lamont. Fuck, missed it. You know, like, <laughs> never mind the fact there's a hundred more dope houses in that same area that you could get this into. This one was the yeah, one. Yeah, I was right. pissed off that I missed something. But so I get back to work early, and the ankle just never healed. It just kept, after every shift, I mean, I'd pull my sock down, and it'd be like swollen, you know, around the around where the sock was, just puffy, and, and, and the finally... Uh, Sergeant Cato at the time, he said, you can go back and get that re-x-rayed. So I go back and get it re-x-rayed and it was broken. So I'd worked on it several, I worked on it several months after it initially got broken. And by then it broken away some cartilage and part of the bone. And then over the next few months of working, still getting in hobbling through foot chases and, you know, it, it basically had broken up into several chips. So I had to have surgery on that. That was my first one. And then Pat and I got into a car wreck, uh, going after a stolen car and I ruptured two discs in my neck and I was off for a very long time. I, you know, and then the thing is the week that I got back to work, I had to go through like a week long updater class for core, you know, or whatever it was called back then bridges of the past or some shit. But, um, yeah, that's what they call it. That's what they called core back then. So the last day of core, jacking around in the dt room i blow out my patellar tendon and i'm off again 
so that that time, all that time off. At first, it was kind. Of, it was relaxing. You know, I, you know, I, I'm rehabbing. I'm, you know, and, I, and I've had a two level neck fusion. I had so I had C five, C six, C six, C seven fused. But then that patellar tendon, and that actually wasn't. It was a bad surgery, but not like the knee. When you're having to get around on crutches for several months and a immobilized thigh high brace, it was a beating. And especially after being off work all that time, I was depressed. I mean, I, you know, I, I was. Everything was a chore to do, right? And I was ready to get back to work. I just because I want to do something different. My mindset of work was really rusty, right? And then I get back to work, and pff, Greg's narcotics, Mata's, Mata's. Uh, I don't remember what, Academy, maybe or maybe Mata was at Northeast or Central at the time. Um, That's what I remember. I remember yeah. I was at Southeast, and there was a stint where you just disappeared. Yeah. For a long time. And then when you came back, I think Pat had actually come back to Southeast. Well, Pat, not initially. Okay. Pat wasn't, Pat was still at Northwest in deployment initially. He came back briefly. He came days. back briefly. Yeah. And I remember seeing you two and you were riding together mm-hmm. and I thought, oh, holy hell, it's, <laughs> it's getting wrecked. And I remember one day Pat just told me like, yeah, we got like 26 guns off the street this month. And I'm like, 26 guns off the street. Where, where do you even find these things? Where, where are these at? How are you getting 26 guns? We knew it was rock to look under. Yeah. Yeah. So. yeah. There's that period where you disappeared, you came back from the injuries, and then I remember that too. Like your peers or colleagues were gone at Southeast, yeah. and you're the old head now with the experience. You're you're in the position that Troy Klingelsmith used to be for you and everything else. Yeah, you know, I, I was experienced, but my mind was rusty. It was I was mentally I wasn't sharp. I, I did not see. I remember when I first got back, and and I brought it up, Misty's. I think your mind is a is like a muscle. You gotta you have to work. Right, right. If not, it gets complacent. It gets, you know, it, it gets out of shape. My mind, I would not see things like I did before prior to going off of the, all that time, uh, like a year and a half, you know, and binge watching 24 and Sopranos and, and shit like that. I mean, your your mind kind of gets very lazy and lax. And I remember I got back and there was only one person that was still there from the old crew. And he was working with a band of young officers, you know, like Emerson, Rowden, uh, Martin, and B. I didn't know. I didn't know these guys. I was like, oh shit, I, I trust him, but I don't. I don't. I don't know these jokers, and 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 my guys are gone. And at that point in my career, I was like, I literally, and I don't think I've even told many people this. At the time, I was living up in the North Central area in Dallas. There was I. I had brokered a deal to go to north central they was going to switch body for body trader yes but didn't do it thank god yeah i was i literally was like on the list they were going to trade body for body and somebody's going to come to southeast i was going to go to north central because i mentally was not i wasn't into that type of job anymore you know my friends are around the people i trust and and you all know you have to really trust a person that you're working with doing that type of aggressive uh policing um but this one friend just kept dragging me off the couch and getting out there. And I remember I would go home at night and I would feel like that I had, I had taken a Benadryl just because I was so freaking tired because the mental activity was so much more than, than I had been used to being off of those injuries, you know, um, and the critical thinking you have to think and elevated stress levels, you know, elevated we, we live with those all the time and we yeah. just don't even realize they're elevated. No, I don't know. We, yeah. and then and just nonstop going, from dope house to dope house to dope house. So I credit, 
I credit uh, him getting me in with these other young guys. And then at that point, I kind of started showing them, you know, like what we used to do, right? And then... And then I just kind of went on from there, and then and then um, I was working on evenings, and basically we're still on patrol, but we would all kind of band together the same way we did, Greg. Um, with you know, we there was a thirty eighties, but there's also there was a there was a lot of it was big, right? We'd be in patrol, and we'd still we'd ride ride the hell out of calls and go chase dope, and then and go on and hit hit some houses, right? And that's what we did. And then in twenty ten. They had this Operation Hornet's Nest going on. It was some, you know, it was just a cool name for a... I forgot that's what the name of it was. Operation Hornet's <laughs> Nest. Yeah. Yeah. And, they, yeah. and they had these things called crime response teams at every substation. And it was on days. It was days of weekends off. And at the time, I was working Edmonds. And I really didn't care to work on days because I didn't want to get up early. I never had a day job. I mean, and shit, ever. So I liked Sergeant Robert Grant. He was over the unit. But I didn't know anybody on the team, and I was. And then again, I'm old school, and my trust. I did not know her. I didn't trust any of those guys. I, didn't, I mean, Danny, you were there. I'd heard of you, but I didn't. I didn't know you, and I didn't know um, Helen Guard or Travis French or um, yeah. Oh, there, and then there was there was yeah. Then there were some there were some folks that you just you just couldn't count on, you know. But. I started working with you guys, and I don't know if you remember early on, I would still call out, I would still get the you know, Chris Whites and some other people that I would mm-hmm. work on evenings to come yep. and help come us do things, yep. and because I really, I just didn't know y'all. It wasn't, and then I started work, and I started seeing real quick that um, it, it not everybody worked as a cohesive team, and I was, tr- and I really felt the need doing that type of work to bring that cohesive team setting to that team like we used to have. But policing had changed a lot, too, from that old-style uh, policing to to when the CRT was going on. Mm-hmm. And at that time, that team needed some kind of guidance or leadership. I remember Sergeant Robert Grant coming to me. I was on the team before you by a couple months, maybe like four or five months. It was like six months it was yeah. going, yeah. And at some point, he had come to me and did his little kind of behind-the-scenes talk, like, hey, I'm thinking about trying to get Joe King on this team. And I, I was, yes, do it. We need someone here who's had some experience doing this kind of work that can help us because a bunch of new guys just run around trying to figure this out. So I was really excited when you came on. And I think you filling us out was the same as a lot of the guys on the team trying to fill you out. They were kind of hesitant, wondering if you were going to come in and wreck shop and just be condescending to us or not really help us out or, you know, take over. Or Well, I'll ask you, I'll ask you a question that, that, oh, I, do, that, I, that I wreck shop or – or was no, that condescending? Not, not at okay. all. I was just curious of how it came across because I, I mean, I can be. Rec shop, no. No, no, not at all. It, but there was a lot of guys. yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Would you like to know what someone else had to say about you? Oh, I would. Yes. Yeah? Yeah. Because you rode with Angie, right? Angie Fox, shout out to Washington State. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Yes. Oh, wow. What does oh, Angie goodness. have to say about Joe King? You still King? keep in contact uh, with her, huh? Wow. Joe King is the hardest working police officer I've ever known. He is also one of the smartest people to ever wear the uniform. Joe is not only an amazing officer, but he is the best friend that anyone could ask for. I will forever be grateful for his mentorship throughout my career. He's simply the best. Wow. Thanks, Angie. I'll, I'll put a check in the mail to her. 
<laughs> by the weekend. I just I remember all those afternoons, me, you, and Angie in the gym working out, man. I mean, yeah. those were good times. Oh, that was great. Yeah, that was, was our bitch. Really that was. was our bitch session. Yeah, it, it really, <laughs> and, it really and getting was. out frustrations. <laughs> yes, it was. And Angie, man, I miss her. Oh, I miss. I love Angie. Oh, thank you. Thank you, Angie. That was very sweet. Yeah. So uh, <laughs> obviously, you rescued me off of deep nights when I came to CRT. Um, we actually met in the gym for the first time. Yeah. I don't know if you remember that or not. <sighs> Fill me in. Well, I was, I was working an extra job. I was on uh, Deep Night CRT, and I got there a little early to work out, and you and Angie were in the gym. That's where we met. And I obviously had heard, heard about you, like they, they talk about. Um, I mean, your reputation preceded you. Uh, and so I, I knew who you were, and uh, we struck up a conversation, and then next thing you know, I'm on day CRT with you. And then me and you were working out all the time yeah. together. But that was nothing that was new for you. You weight lift. You you were into weightlifting, mm-hmm. and you have remained into weightlifting. Why why is that so important to you, as your your go to for uh, health? Well, you know, thank God I got into a re- a habit of of lifting weights back when I was fifteen. You know, in high school, and just I've that's my stress relief. You know, and, and Misty and I used to kill it in the gym at Southeast. Scott McDonald and I used to work out every day. It was almost like a we, we did it like we were getting paid to do it, <laughs> and I just. I think that helps with the with the team camaraderie, and and also just staying because it's a very physical job, and it's easy to let yourself go in this job. You see a lot of officers that are out of shape and and they got bad lower back. I got a bad lower back, but I think that being in, in good shape has probably helped prolong my career. I literally, I mean, I, from ninety seven to to sixteen out doing a physical job it wasn't easy there at the end but i think that staying in shape really was important but i enjoyed working out god i think it helped with the you know just the team the team atmosphere and you and i me you and angie used to go in there just god we'd kill it we would we wouldn't be able to hardly drive home no i I remember many times sitting there with a trash can between my legs Debating on if I was going to throw up or not, <laughs> you know, because he was pushing me so hard. Doing those drop sets on squats. Yeah, oh my goodness! And and you're right. And then barely being able to walk the next day, I'd I'd tell if me and you weren't riding together, sometimes I'd be right, uh, riding with Robin Rivera, and I'd tell Robin and be like, "Hey, I'll I'll drive. That's all I can do right now because I can't get out of the car. I, I don't know what to tell you." Well, I remember you texting me saying you were driving home and your like chest muscle just locked up on you, like where you, you, you went to take it, you turn and your your chest is locked up. And, you know, I, I just like, I like working out with my friend. I mean, and it, you know, especially people that are like-minded that love to work out. Randy and I, we, we, we work out uh, recently together and it was just fun. It's just fun to, it's almost like a, it's almost like a therapy session physically and mentally. Cause you can actually sit and you can go through the day and talk about how the day went, what we could have done. And then also just keeping your body just mentally it you know because we have a we have a lot of little minor injuries in this job but just keeping it uh, at peak performance you know speaking of the therapy of this of the working out that's where i know i, I might be ahead of schedule on this that's mm-hmm. probably where a lot of the discussion on this podcast started was yes. out there at rockwall the fitness legendary le- legends was, fit yep. legends fitness out there in rockwall when you started to want to do it and then you didn't want to do it. And then we got here. I, I don't know if I had a schedule on that. That's right. Yeah. But that's where a lot of this started when we got here. Cause you were working out, we we're working out together and it's therapy session. And you know, you, you and I, you, there was, and I'll, and I'll get into the, to the, uh, why of the podcast, but you, you, that was our, 
that was our therapy session. And you know, and you and I've been friends for shit more than half my life, right? And I, we could talk. I could talk to you candidly about anything, and and some thoughts about uh, starting this podcast and just anything really, just career, you know, you know, just a career moves, relationship moves, everything we talked about, and we also were kicking each other's ass in the gym. So you're, it's a physical and mental exercise, I think. I mean, Misty, God, Misty, I remember Misty. She was before she got in a SWAT and became badass over there we would just go in there and just beat the hell out of each other that, it was fun that southeast weight room has its own personality it yeah really remember the deep night sergeants when they would get in there with the hair band music and just the cigars <laughs> yeah oh yeah and yeah and just and do a couple of reps you just get a pump and then take off <laughs> speaking of therapy i i remember sitting in detail and everybody's so serious and quiet, and I would be looking around, and there's the same pictures hung in the detail room. They're probably still there today, the same fake plant with dust collecting on it. And I look closely, and there's some weird stuffed animal peeking out of the fake plant. Or there's some weird piece of art of dogs playing poker hanging on the... I think the dogs playing poker <laughs> might still be there. Yeah. And I'm, like, joking. Yeah, well... <laughs> I, so that detail room, you're right. It is like in a movie style depot. You have a, you have a few sergeants set up in an elevated position up top, the higher authorities, and then they have a bunch of tables in front for roll call. And I I, I found like an old oil painting, like a, a country scenery. It was a good size painting. It was the size of a damn probably like a almost like a 45 inch TV. You know, it was a big it was a big oil painting, and I just hung it up on the back back where the sergeants sat, and it just. <laughs> It sat there. I mean, eight years. I mean, it just stayed there. It just sat there. And they probably were like, well, it doesn't really fit in here, but it is kind of pretty. We don't know who put it up, but we'll leave it. Just and no one has ownership of the place to even decide that yeah. that shouldn't be here. It's just the, the dogs. The dogs playing poker lasted maybe three months before somebody <laughs> took it down. But, but yeah, I would. And I would also like to, while we were in detail, I would look around the room. And I would start, I would block my number and I would start calling people's phones to see who had their ringer on to, to be an asshole to, to make their phone ring. And there was a certain person you would get every single time. Yeah. Hey, you know, and he's retired now. Shit, I'll go ahead and say, uh, Lieutenant Hart, this, that was me that I, I always would block my number and call you and you would never have your ringer off. And I remember one time you got up and went out in the hallway and answered it. And, and of course I hung up and you came back in. Sergeant Moore, Paul Morris goes, well, who is it? Because I know who it is. It's downtown. <laughs> oh, of course. It's, it's, it's president. <laughs> They're calling. It can't be just a lowly PO in the back cracking yeah, himself up. Good. Yeah, it had to be somebody real important. But, yeah, I, 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 like, to, I like to do bits. Yeah. Bits. Yeah. It's yeah. fun. I think this is probably the same for Mark, but this is like my memory and picture of you is working on that team, working hard, having fun. And then all the laughing and the jokes and the pranking. And then the weightlifting in the room. If I, if I had to pick three things that I thought of a joke king, it would be working out as a police officer, having fun making jokes, and having a good time working out. I think for some of the others in the command staff, they had a different view of you, a good one. But it was you were known with a lot of the higher-ups as being – the go-to guy to go for an honest answer and a good explanation on things in the department. Or if there is a little pet project that needed to be done, 
they went to you to figure out how could we do this? How do we implement this? What do you think about it? Um, I don't know if there's officers out there that remember the tabs program you started, which was basically keeping track of the burglars like a hook book across the board through all the divisions, knowing that a lot of these burglars drove crime high. Right. Um, there are some other programs you're involved with. You were an RBT instructor for some years, too, helping with the RBT program. Maybe you can talk a little bit about, besides the goofing off and working at our level, working up with the higher-ups and your relationships you've had with people who wear brass. Yeah, I've had a really weird, unique um, relationship with with command staff. and But also there was a time where I did not have a good I didn't have a good rep with uh, certain command staff, but I knew that if I, because, um, you know, everybody's looked at as the old dirty dope chaser, you know, they're going to, yeah, you're going to go to the federal pen, you know, and I can't tell you how many times I heard that. And, and when I was in, on the streets, I called Greg up for a warrant. He's like, oh, shit, what are you gonna do? come out here. <laughs> anyway, so I can't, tabs is targeting against burglary suspects. You know, I know command likes cute acronyms and, and military and police got to have an acronym. Yeah, we have to. So it basically, what did I, what I did is I came up with a list of habitual, uh, burglars within Southeast. Then I broke it down into divisions they're arrested in. And also I, I had put bolos on every single one of them. That way, if any of them had a, had an, had a warrant out or, or anybody, if, they so got ran. Yeah, if they got ran anywhere in the city, uh, it would pop up known burglar at Southeast, contact Joe King uh, via email with new info. So I was getting I was getting emails from officers across the city saying, Hey, I pulled him over here in this red grand marquee with so and so. Oh shit, he's one of our burglars too. Oh, or he's one of our, our targeted dope dealers. You know, so I was getting fresh intel and also I had them in uh, T Dex at the time. I think it's index now. But I had everybody on T Dex watch list. So I would get an email every time they were arrested or when they were released from 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 jail i would get an email just to kind of keep constant basically tabs on them really and i made ended up making one for drug dealers that's what i really wanted to do i so i kind of finagled it where i did one for burglars and you know the command staff's like oh yeah this is great you know and chief brown actually made everybody in the every division in uh the city create one of course that you know that always put people at each division over it that didn't want to do it. Mm-hmm. So it's not really ever a good idea because they half-ass it, but I didn't care. Uh, Chief Elsie at the time was at Southeast. She was incredible, and she pushed it. And she liked going into the going into uh, the Comstat with these numbers. And, uh, like, you know, like, it, what what we were finding is is, is basically the uh, same offender kept hitting the same area, you know, because they're very territorial. Showing that mesh yep. relationship or that nexus. Well, then it even went further. Is once I made a, a digital hookbook up for the drug, uh, the dope dealers, um, we saw thirty percent of the drug dealers we were targeting were also habitual burglars in the same division. So if they're dealing dope together, more than likely they're stealing shit together too, right? And the reason I something that inspired me to come up with that is. There was an officer here. Now he went to the DEA. His name is Mark Terry. And Misty and, and, and Greg uh, remembering when I got on, he was the dope chaser. He, he was he was so instinctive. He was so his instincts were incredible. He was intuitive as far as visualizing what a dope dealer would do. Right. And I really was somebody that I wanted to kind of uh, be like and model my instincts after. But he also had a 
he had a book in his in his shirt pocket. It was his whip. It was his a hook book basically, and he had a little Intel book on. He could tell you this this bad guy's nickname was Hell Pookie, and he lived. He he dealt dope over at Robin Oaks. He drove a he drove a Oldsmobile. He hung out with these other guys. He had all this in his little book, right? Well, who had access to that? But just him. And there was always a running joke within the within the little unit, like if he ever if he ever God forbid got killed in the line of duty. We were gonna pilfer pilfer his pocket, yeah. We're gonna pilfer his shit and and take it, and we would have that that um, you know that little treasure trove. So I wanted to make a digital hook book that was accessible to everybody and targeted certain fenders, and that's that's how it kind of got started. But it was inspired by what he did. He was doing back in the early nineties. So, and, and as far as like the brass goes, they just it just seems like I'm always getting called by somebody even now i mean even to this day um at all levels of of command it it just i don't know it i always stumble into something where they and and it's it's prideful but it's also stressful in a lot of ways of of coming up with an answer and i and and a lot of people that you know this i like in mark y'all y'all know i like projects and and there's always a more efficient way to do anything right and there's a don't I don't. I'm, I hate the phrase, and Steve Claggett said this too. And I was over. There, I wanted. If I had a lighter, I would light it. When Steve said this, he hated the old. This is the way we've always done it. Mentality. Yes. It may, it Absolutely. pisses me off when I hear that, because it, it it impedes progress, right? And uh, I don't know. I don't. I don't think that way. I, I always. I'm, I always try to look at a certain task or a certain program and see if it's being run the most efficient way, and then how could it be done better? Everything could be done better right it may fail you may oh shit i didn't do that right i'll tweak it here and there which i've done but i you know it over the years it's gotten uh the trust of some of some brass and and i am comfortable talking to them because i don't speak on things unless i know something about them i'm not somebody just sit and run my mouth about everything because there's a lot there's plenty of those people on the department and also i'm not one of these people that would sit and talk about a program and say oh that ain't gonna work well, the, this is never going to fail. Okay, well, how you fix it? Well, I don't know. That's not my job. Yeah, and that's the one thing I can't sense. People automatically say no, or well, that's not going to work, or that's not going to happen. Yeah, well, there's a lot of people that just, they, they just, especially some command, you know, command level folks, they hear a new program and they immediately just say no, as opposed to, let's fucking make this work. And then when I came into the whole tabs thing, Chief Elsie said, do it, push through, make it happen, lay it out, and, and, and let me see it. And I did. And it kind of went from there. It went on to Chief Coleman. Then I kind of had that relationship with him. And, hell, now most of the Chiefs now I've known since they were POs. I want to touch on tabs just real quick because I did help you a little bit mm-hmm. when uh, when you had that going. Um, you know, the history of a hookbook isn't all that new. But like you said, the, the important part there was that you had a hookbook that could be shared across. We were actually sharing information, What was a, which to me at the time, that had never been done before. Uh, and I believe, didn't you get an award for that? Didn't, weren't you, wasn't that recognized in some way? Some wasn't it hanging in a banner by his cubicle? No, I think so. Oh, no, that's a uh, a different award. For oh. that. No, uh, no, I did, I did get an award for that. I was, uh, the, <laughs> the, it, the rings left at home, patrol loss for the year in 2010. For that, I mean, yeah, so that was a nice thank you from what, Chief what year? 2010. Yeah, it was, I got it right before, right before? I came, yeah, right before I came over to the team. I can't imagine supervising you. Oh, yeah? Did you work for Sergeant Grant probably the longest? 
Yeah, uh, I worked for the, the Grant brothers. There was Robert and there's Ron Grant, and they're identical twins. And both Ron of them, looks like the Terminator. Yes, well, Ron, I the, the Terminator from Terminator Two, like the police officer with everything tucked in so right. tight. Oh yeah, his hairs. That's how you tell them apart. There's not a hair out of place, and and he's very. I remember seeing him run for the first time through yeah. the parking he's lot. Robotic, he, yeah, robotic. He looked like the Terminator. He definitely didn't look like Arnold. That's for no, sure. he didn't look like Arnold. But he, these guys, both these two twin brothers, one of them very manicured and the other one somewhat disheveled and that's robert he looked kind of he looked like he had just went out on a bender you know but he, he had the suave hair kind of in his face that he had yeah, to move aside yeah he, he he did not use a lot of gel you know like like ron shit was like you know it was yeah, like a in place. jimmy jimmy johnson hair like always always in place and uh he was very even deliberate even how he put carmex on his lips you know i know i saw him back there doing that it was like kind of creepy <laughs> But but Robert but I worked for Ron before I worked for okay for Robert and they were the best just generally good people because honestly who gives a shit about being a good cop I mean really being a good cop that's a bonus but generally good people which which translates to really great supervisors actually yes yeah. Yeah. yes I asked him that's what oh uh huh oh God what did he say he didn't mention Indeed. all the um Indeed. the penis memes or um. <laughs> I don't know or anything about this. getting get caught pictures with, you know, eating a banana. Eating a banana he didn't yeah. mention those things, which I was hoping he would. Of course not. But here's what he said. Joe is a great officer to have work for you because he, you know he will do the job the right way. If we had some type of crime problem, he would always come up with a way to solve the problem. His passion was shutting down drug houses and drug dealers at Southeast. And all of the drug dealers knew who he was, and they didn't want to get on his bad list. Officers from other divisions and departments would call him if they were looking for a suspect and thought he could help locate him. What made him exceptional was he was always kept up with the new laws and always followed the Supreme Court decisions. He even developed programs to help officers track suspects. Joe always gives 110%, whether it's work, working out, or family life. Wow, I like how you change your voice to sound like him too. Because he, he had that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thanks, Sergeant Grant. Yeah. Thank you, Sarge. Love you. Miss you. The best guys I've ever worked hey, for. Let me let me piggyback on that real mm-hmm. quick. What he said there about case law. Uh, for for those that don't really know about police work, um, I'd like for you to kind of explain that because uh, you talk about the generations of police work. Um, when you had you were working with Klingle and those guys, and they kind of taught you how to do it, and then you uh, you guys went out and you did your thing, and then you kind of taught us when I came over to CRT. Um, that's one of the biggest things I ever learned from you was case law. And you really got me into looking at case law, what it does, how it kind of guides us for what we do and just how, uh, for lack of a better word, ignorant some people are in this department um, that do this every day that have no idea what case law says that we can and can't do. And yeah. And I'll add to that real quick that I would say also the follow through that you pushed with being an officer. When you make an arrest, it doesn't end when you drop them off at jail. But it's the report writing and what you're putting in there and then going to trial and yeah. getting on the stand and how, how you can articulate yourself, how you can defend your actions, how you present yourself. That was huge for me in my career because no one ever really pushed that. And then now I'm getting exposed to a lot of this. I'm getting practice. I'm getting guidance from you. And then I'm putting it into practice. Actually, we, we went to court. I don't know. We were going to court every week at least. You know, we we go to court first in the morning and get it knocked out and then hit a house and maybe yeah right. and then and then yeah. maybe grab a lunch right right, and, then, right. and then just start booting doors again right right that afternoon and it was just an, a revolving door of arrest turning into court time 
And I'd say that was huge for me was how you helped us with uh, re- report writing and court time. So there was a, we, we talked about me being on the brass good list in a, and uh, you know, that shit can change on a dime too. You can, you can get on a, on a, on a shit list really quick. Way back when there was a certain chief, I'm not going to mention their name that actually assigned their sergeant, the admit sergeant to review all of my police reports. And another sergeant basically told me this that, Hey, you don't really care if I mean, they, I said, Hey, you look all you want, but that, that person made me study law more and also be more articulate and document what I was doing. I said, you know what? I'm going to make my damn report so defined that the person reading this, their, their, their head's going to melt, you know, their brain's going to melt trying to decipher this. I would actually put some excerpts from case laws and, and, and Sarge uh, Garcia down there in narcotics. He's read many of these. Uh, working alongside of me, and then also uh, my reports changed drastically uh, from when I started until when I left the streets. Uh, but it was really important because there's a lot of people they they could take somebody to jail and they have they take it up to the jail sergeant and they get it approved by the jail sergeant. Their mayor may not be even close to an expert on that that particular topic, and they think that their case ends there. Oh, I got it past them. It's a great arrest. No, you. I tried to prepare my reports and my cases um, and the people that I worked with. We, we prepare our cases for courts, not for a jail sergeant, right? Um, that, you know, like I said, may or may not be an expert on, the, on that particular arrest. And it was just really important to and, and know the updated laws. Know when Kentucky versus King came out or Arizona versus Gantt come out, how that affected us. And I just – there. Anybody listening, young officers, caselawforcops.net, well, there's a four, caselawforcops.net. It's great for knowing all the new laws and all the, basically it, would ha- it has a synopsis of the, of the uh, case, the, uh, the, the ruling on it, and how it affects you. And I think that's really important um, as an all, young and old officer. Because if, you just t- if you're just one of these young officers that learn basic search and seizure from the academy and you think you're going to roll through two decades of, of uh, doing that type of work and it's going to carry you, you're sorely mistaken. I think a lot of the officers now, they don't educate themselves in certain laws. So they try to make certain scenarios fit into laws they know. When in fact, they actually could articulate it better and it would fit better and they wouldn't get in trouble. So that was always just important um, to keep myself and other people who worked with me out of trouble. Yeah, and, and all of this kind of going along with how the command staff looked at you just for the listeners to understand you are a police officer rank yes okay so the police officer rank i don't want to say it's an entry rank but is the first rank you come on as the department and then from there uh, most jobs require that you promote to senior corporal in order to transfer to another division or get another job and then you can work your way up the ranks from there if you choose you are still a po or what we call police officer Missy calls slick sleeve yeah, or a slick, slick sleeve. Yeah. It's slick sleeve because there's no chevrons on on the sleeve. No, you never let that rank define your work. And I remember you talking about that a lot. You look at other detectives or other senior corporals on the department and even say, "Look, they're they're not even doing this much that they can do." And don't let that rank define the box of the work you can put into this job. Yeah, I always believe don't let that rank restrain you and and, and, and allow progression, right? 
you don't have to be a detective to do the detective type work out in the street. Look at all the cases that we put together with uh, the the Walker crew and, and and all those and all those other ones we put together. Yeah, we're working with federal agencies, working yep. with Texas DPS. That we started cases from reasonable suspicion and built it up to federal level conspiracy type cases, all from a band of yahoos in uniform. You don't have to have. Of course, you get to a certain point, you have to bring it to a other detective resources. on a on a silver yeah. platter or, or get other resources in. But you don't have to let your rank or even your status and wherever you work holds you back. And I, I, I didn't, I, I still don't, I still don't let my slick sleeve hold me back. I just, I, I, I have no problems making decisions and, and, uh, and building on those. And I really don't at this shit. I'm like, I think I'm like 50 something at my or at 50, 49 or 50 at my rank right now in the department. And I'm fine. So, you know, one of the sayings you always had that almost sounded like a dead horse being beaten to me besides the electric boogaloo. Yeah. The, was. <laughs> break into electric boogaloo is your, is your kryptonite. <laughs> so the other thing that I always heard you say is your, rep- your reputation is not what you think of yourself. It's what others think of you. And I always remember you'd say that and I kind of, yeah, well, yeah, yeah I know. Well, and it's like, well, obviously, right? Obviously, you know this. But one day you said it. And it just hit me a different way. And it made me realize that it doesn't matter how good of work I do here. It can be the best work. Yeah. That doesn't even necessarily make my reputation. All that makes my reputation is what others think of me. Of course. And that kind of showed me something else amongst the good police work was also the camaraderie with not just their small units, but working with others from other divisions networking, having good relationships with other police officers. And I, and I, that's one thing I would tell all young officers, your reputation starts very, very early in your career. You can be looked at as a, a hard worker, a hard worker, but not controlled, right? Or a slug or a lazy asshole or a squirrel, as we like to call people, or somebody that's not trustworthy or just somebody that just shouldn't be doing this job. And once you get a reputation like that, it's really, especially a negative one, it's really hard to shake it, right? If you have a good reputation, you really want your reputation to walk in the, do- walk in the door before you do, right? You want your name, and hopefully it's in a good light, to walk in that door before you go in there for a job interview. Because there's a lot of people that, they, they do really good work, but they're hard to get along with, right? They don't, people don't like them. And a lot of this job, when you go apply for some of these units, go, yeah, he does good work, but God, he's an asshole. He's hard to work with. He's not. He's he he continually loves to rock the boat and let everybody know he's the smartest man in the world. He can't he can't bend and 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 get along with people, you know. And, and that's I think that's really important. You're not everybody lives in your world, right? You got You can be very good at something, but you can also you need to be open minded and 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 know there's a thousand ways to do a job right and also be flexible to change it right and but i yeah i, I think that's one of the most important things your reputation and bad ones are really hard to shake here on this department yeah i think this job can be cynical too yes and so and it's lonely when you're good at something i'm sure you know that but you know it too um because when danny applied for swat there was some rumors that he was cocky Mm-hmm. Well, I went and found out for myself, he's not cocky, he's confident, and he's surgical, and he has superior concentration. So I think a lot of people were 
maybe jealous or inferior. Because I can't think of any other person I want coming in on a hostage rescue than someone that has those characteristics. So this job can be cynical. And when you are good at something, and you've been good at a lot of things, you're going to have some naysayers. How have you dealt with that? I consider the source. I When I went to that CRT, I kind of did my little background on that team, too. And I heard, oh, Danny Kennedy, he's just a cocky fuck. All right, I got I got something for him, right? I, and I get over and start working. For, I get start this working with this. Suddenly changed. Yeah, yeah. it just yeah, got very intense. Yeah. I thought this was the joke. Very intense in here right now. I start working. I start working with Danny. I'm going. This guy's good. This guy's yeah, damn yeah. good. He's he's smart. He he's tactically sound. He listens. He's willing to change. And and you know I start saying no. And then I start then I start listening to the people that said it initially. And I go, all right, there you go. They don't have anything good to say about anybody. So when I hear people talking shit about me, and I've heard people talk, and I'd say, I've heard people talking shit about this podcast, <laughs> right? Yeah. But, but I consider the source, and they know who they are, and they had never done shit, and they're not liked <laughs> by anybody, and they could sit over there in their corner and and complain. But you know, I I'm I'm just I'm proud that I got a lot of good friends. They and like if anybody in this room right now was to say something, I would listen to them, right? I wouldn't, I would, if if y'all had advice to me, even if it was pulling me to a side and say, hey, you need to, you need to knock this shit off, you know, you need to be better at this, you need to, don't be such a jerk. I would listen. Now, other people, like, yeah, go, you can go cram that. <laughs> That's how I've dealt with it, Misty, is basically I consider who's actually saying it. So moving on from there. <laughs> moving on from Danny. Yeah. Danny, Danny doesn't like attention. He's yeah. it away. Start steering the boat. Mark and I leave the CRT team. Regretfully, actually. I think, Mark, what was your reason for leaving? Uh, honestly, when I was looking at my career, I really wanted to go to narcotics. Just always did. And finally had that opportunity to go. So I went. And I'll tell you that I... A lot of me does regret it. I wish that we still were together. I really do because I've been doing this job for a long time over a few different departments. And I can tell you that that's easily the most fun that I've ever had in, in, in my career. It's By not, far. it's not even close. And I really wish we could go back to doing that, but that's the biggest reason I left and I regret it every day. Yeah. That's, I, I knew when I left, I said, these will likely be the best years on the department I've had. And so far it's still been that way, but Mark and I basically abandoned you. So once again, you're without friends, kind of. Yeah, I'm without friends. And and so work. you moved to South Central? Yeah. And did so, South Central CRT? Yeah, I did. I, I went and worked for now Chief Foy. He was a sergeant over at South Central CRT. And, hell, I had done almost 19 years at Southeast. And, and I was really on the verge of getting burned out. And I, there was also a new chief and a major, uh, our major that took over the CRT, and a lieutenant, actually. He's not with the department. Neither one of them are around anymore. I'm not going to mention the names because they're not worth mentioning. But I saw them come in and, and heard their ideas and like, all right, you know, I think I'm going to, I think I'm going to time for a change. In South Central, I knew I worked Oak Cliff a lot before it became South Central uh, you know, Greg and I, we, we, th there was a part of the group that mainly liked to hang in South Dallas. South Dallas was like, shit, it's, you know, got tired of zombie land. Yeah. I got tired of zombie land. It was in, in, but Oak Cliff was more of a cross between South Dallas and also Pleasant Grove. Yeah, right. A little bit of normalcy. Yeah. Yeah. And you also ran a lot more stash houses down there too. So mm -hmm. I said, you know what? I'm, I'm going to, 
I'm going to go to South Central and I'm going to work for Foy. And it mainly was because of the command staff that Southeast was changing. And plus, there were some people left on the team. that I, I just I was tired of the role. I was tired of that role. And I ended up going to work with uh, a bunch of other complete strangers, you know, at, at Southeast. Some people I uh, vaguely heard of or never heard of and worked with them. And, but, I knew, but I knew Foy, and I trusted Foy and his vision and his leadership uh, style. And I ended up working there my last year before I went, went to legal. So you had Chief Foy on, and he kind of touched on it. I guess you were working for him when 7-7 happened. Yes. So for those who may not be familiar with 7-7, it's what the Dallas Police Department refers to as July 7th, 2016, when we had the incident of five officers killed downtown during a Black Lives Matter protest. Um, sometimes the news refers to it as a sniper attacker event. But it's interesting how that event definitely impacted every single person on the department, whether they were there that night or not, and no matter what level of involvement they've had. So you were on C- the South Central CRT when 7-7 happened. And I'm going to maybe jump ahead a little bit and just kind of preface or set context for this and that. The first three officers who were shot on 7-7 happened to be Southeast officers at one point. So we knew all three of them. Yeah. One of them specifically um, was someone I knew and also looked up to when I was a rookie at Southeast and happened to be a very good friend of yours. So maybe you can share with us what it was like that day leading up to the events of finding out about this going down, where you were. And I don't know if you need to also explain a little bit about who this friend was to you. That day, I remember we, on the South Central CRT, uh, we ended up getting like into two houses that day. And we had, it was a long day. We ended up working a little bit of overtime that day. And it was an exhausting day. It was, it was, it was just balls hot in the summer. It was just so hot in the summer. It was right? like 106 that day. Yes. Yep. And going home and relaxing, I, I remember, uh, um, my daughter and then wife at the time were out of town as so I was home alone. I was watching a movie late at night and I started getting, so I didn't have the news on obviously. So I started just getting constant texts and phone calls. And I was like, Holy shit. So I turned off the movie and I started watching the news and just watching everything unfold. And there was so much misinformation going on. Like, you know, there was only one down, there was 10 down. There was this, this one officer, um, had, passed away no he's still alive no he's passed away no he's still alive and there was just so there was so many uh turns that that night took and seeing the videos of uh of uh brent thompson that was that was actually on a live feed of, of him getting uh gunned down there in front still of El on Central. youtube even yeah, yeah it's terrible that's that's one of the worst videos and uh, i've seen in law enforcement but greg was Greg was uh, also friends with with one of the fallen, and you know. So after that happened, I was already towards the end of my career. As far as, I mean, I was very burnt out. Even going over to work at South Central, I still was just tired. We were making very good arrests, and it was it was still fun, but it wasn't as fun as it used to be, right? It was more like a job as opposed to enjoyment, right? And also things were changing, just the command staff and just the 
political culture was changing and the outlook on, on law enforcement was changing to the point where you really felt like what you were doing was, was like pissing in the wind, you know, and, and you weren't appreciated. And there were some ungrateful people. I was already to that point, that mindset, and then that happened. And I had, at the time, what Carmen was, Carmen was two, a little yeah, over two years daughter. old. Yeah, my daughter, Carmen. And I was, and, I, and I've heard for years, oh, you, when, you get a, when you get a child, it's going to change your mentality. Oh, the hell with that. It will not. Well, it did. And then when that happened, and losing officers like that, and just a lot like how buried, how finite life can be, and, and just losing Traumatic pause. Losing such a good friend and almost invincible character like that, like any of us can go, you know? And I was like, you know, maybe it's time for a change. Finally um, set aside selfishness of wanting to be the guy to go out and hit this drug house. Because let's, let's make no mistake, listeners, we can knock out in 10 dope houses in a week. There's 50 more taking their places. And, Mark, and Sarge, you've been in narcotics. And Same 10 pop up. And again, anyway, they do. That, yeah, that they pop up. But we did it more just for the just for the uh, the rush and also for completing the task, right? It's a mission. When you go out and you're investigating a house and you're attacking a house, it's to complete the mission. But you look at, at when that happened, it kind of woke me up of like, what am I doing? Why am I still doing this type of work? So that that next week, you know, sorry, Chief Foy talked about doing 13 events in five days and all the funerals and all the events and the, the candlelight vigils and all of that. It all just, God, that week was, uh, for me personally and professionally, the worst, right? And I know every, so many people lost so many things that day, and they're still affected. Dan, I mean, everybody here in this room is affected, so... I'm 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 just giving you what my perspective was in 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 how it affected me. Uh, I was one of the pallbearers, and so was Greg down there. It was terrible. It was absolutely terrible. And I started thinking, yeah, you know, I'm I'm going out. And we're shutting down some of these houses. To what cost? So I decided, I remember legal, legal services popped up. I had been on 20-something years. I never heard of, I never, I didn't know what legal did. But I knew because I'd never promoted. That's one of the things that I wish I could go back and change is promoting, right? Two senior corporal only. I wouldn't want to be a supervisor. I wouldn't want that role. Um, but only because it limited where I could go. And they had a spot open for PO, and they called it Warrant Services and Legal. Wow. All right, that sounds kind of cool. Really? Little did I know. <laughs> I applied for legal. Um, I ended up getting it. And the last door I kicked in was September of 2016 at 3823 Bonneview. I'm glad you remember. Right. I do. It was a, a shitty apartment down there. And, and basically, it was a lady that kept pleading with with chief foy for us to shut down this network of guys there was like six different rooms all connected and we ended up getting into the to the main one you know it's like like sometimes you just have a key to the city right and you just stumble in the ship 
I remember kicking that door and two guys behind it, both trying to hold it back, sh- shoving them aside because the floor's slick and they're sliding on the floor. One guy's crawling out of the back window, and there's a there's one of them dropped a pistol. And there's like a few pounds of weed behind the door, and then there's a bunch of crack and Xanax, and got everything settled. And I remember going to jail, and I was thinking, why am I still doing this? You know that person that kept calling repeatedly about us shutting down that house. If I go out there and risk, risk, you know, do that style of proactive policing, I get into something that that may be perceived as as wrong or, or pushing envelope. That same person that's begging for help that actually has to live amongst that that shit probably would be out and I'd be vilified. So that that was really a turning point of like. I, I just want to change. I've never had an office job in my life, but I knew I could. It's easy for me to say, "Oh, I'm not going to mess with dope. I'm not going to. I'm not going to chase dope anymore. I'll just answer calls." I knew I had to take myself. I had to remove myself from the streets if I was going to change. Right? I could not because I know if I said, ah, "I'm not going to be on the team," I'll go back to patrol, answer calls, which I could easily done. I had great seniority, had days and weekends off. I know. I know myself. I would have gone back some form to that type of job and I, I would have, I would not have uh, stopped. So I applied for legal services and that was a huge learning change. And I didn't know anything about case filing. I didn't know anything about RMS and this new thing called LEA portal, which is the County's version of RMS. I would file cases. I had to learn all that very quickly and it was, it wasn't fun job. My job is not fun, but it is, it does occupy my mind a lot because I found a shitload of problems that needed to be fixed. And I do like projects and I like solving problems to that, to that end. When, when I found out you're going to go to legal, I was ecstatic for a couple of reasons. I was, <laughs> I was happy. First of all, that you were getting out of patrol because to be honest with you, when, when I left and you went over to South central, you were telling me about some of the issues you had. I was worried about you. I really was. And then I, my best friend was coming up to legal. I was like, this is awesome. And then the second reason, a little more selfish, is the guy you replaced was a really good guy in legal. He was kind of the go-to up there. Yeah. Uh, and for those that don't know, this division we're talking about, legal, is kind of the clearinghouse for every arrest, every piece of paper that goes over to the county. Um, legal is involved right. in that. Yeah, so yeah, it, ha- it has right. to be done right. And so for you to replace him, I couldn't have really, in reality, I could not have dreamed of anybody better to come up to replace him. Well, you know, Mark, it, I was such a fish out of water going up there, though. I didn't know anything that that office did. I, I you know, and, and, and I appreciate you saying that. And the guy that I replaced had been there 17 years, and he had everything. He was like, looked at it, the department was like Yoda, right, as, as far as. But, man, I got up there, and, and once I learned the basics, I started looking around and lifting up this rug. There's a piece of shit laying there. Yeah. <laughs> they looked under this right. other rug. There's another turd. There's another rug. This one looks like it's been there for years, dried up, <laughs> lost its color. You know, and, and I was like, damn, this is a mess. So my over-analytical mind started working, and actually it put me at ease a little bit taking that type of job of, of thinking I could help change something, and I'm, we're still doing that. And once again, you are the guy. The go-to. Yeah, the go-to that everyone in that in that area of the department and the command staff is looking to for help. Like, oh, can you help us clean this up? And asking your advice and basically being some kind of liaison 
for all these programs. So you, you have legal, you know, Misty talked about projects. You are someone who likes projects. So you had some other things going on in the department, like the Angel Armor, Grant Money, working with the Dickies Foundation, now this ATO podcast. Any of those you want to touch on? Yeah. So the Angel Armor, um, in 2016, August of 2016, Angel Armor came out to South Central and they had all these plates. And they basically would stop a ballistic round. They were also very lightweight and they could fit in your uh, in your level three uh, uh, vest and to give you further protection. I ended up buying my own. I got with um, um, Minnie and Bill Carruth who said, hey, we want to do something to get all officers this this, this kind of uh, protection. So they hooked me up with a couple of other people. It fell through, and then in December of 2016, they introduced me to uh, Maureen Dickey of Dickey Barbecue, and it kind of took off. We we started raising funds and um, and for Angel Armor Plates, and we ended up getting – first was gang unit, and then Northeast CRT and Northeast uh, – deployment got theirs and then uh, some patrol northeast because world market they uh our central market actually uh, was was the donors for that one and we started having all these fundraisers and then uh i got a chief involved uh, because i was getting a lot of resistance from uh another command staff that was lower than that particular chief and i always know to go higher i don't i try to swing for the fences and i i have no problem going over people's head uh, when 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 I think that the cause is just, and I felt the cause was just of getting officers protection, right? And I didn't give a shit who I pissed off, so I would go to this. I go to this other at the time two star chief, and got the ball rolling. And there was a grant written, and with the, the governor at the time, basically said they're going to open up for grants. I like literally had we we. Long story short, got everybody outfitted with uh, Angel Armor on the department. So how many Angel Armor plate sets do you think are out there right now for officers oh. on Dallas Police? Sets, probably. Yeah, or how many officers do you think are outfitted? Just ballparking. Uh, probably to over 2,000. Nice. Yeah. So, it, and, um, no, that was a good project. And then also it formed a relationship with the Dickies uh, Barbecue and Maureen Dickey. And, and now um, I'm... I'm on the uh, the Dickey Foundation board. Uh, I don't know how I worm my way into that, but it's 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 an honor to be on that. And I'm also uh, uh, Ed Lujan asked me if I would be on the Assisty Officer Foundation board, and I've always you know totally respected and, and grateful for the Assisty Officer Foundation. And then Ed asked me, and I remember, eh, I'll think about it. I kind of gave the old. It's like getting invited to a party, and you know deep down you're not going to go and Right and Doritos and underwear night and stuff. Yeah, go out. yeah, I, yeah. I'd, I'd really sit there and watch uh, something on Netflix. But Randy uh, Aguilar, he basically goes, "No, he's going to do it. He's going to do it." I go, "Ah, oh, shit. Okay. I, I just don't like to be a part of something. I don't feel like I'd add anything to. Right. But um, you know, I, I've had a lot of fun. I got to spend more time with Randy doing it, and also just you know helping a lot of officers uh, doing what the ATO does. Like when it, injured officers uh, or they have sickness or uh some kind of element we uh will provide financial assistance and it's just it's been fun there's a lot of events we we put together for uh fundraising we're a non-profit and then starting up this uh you know starting up this podcast was kind of another w- way to feel like i was chipping in and plus it was a big project to start i'm not even know what the hell i was doing starting this i still don't i'm still fumbling my way through this 
Yeah, we're all figuring it out. Yes. So with all these projects, for me, you've always been the project guy. Like you've been good at starting projects. You have these great ideas. And then you also uh, incorporate them almost and you get others involved and you make it a team effort. So your latest project really is this podcast. So talk to us about the podcast. What made you start it? What was the idea for it? Where do you see this going? And I'm talking about this podcast. The ATO, oh, this one. Okay. Preaching the Divide podcast. Not, not the other not one your, I have uh, going your on. secret personal yeah. one. Yeah. I'm not talking about that one yet. Right. I don't always have great ideas. I have ideas, but but if you, you only know about the, the decent ones because it's the only ones I bring up. The others I keep in my head. Um, so Betsy Orton of the Dickey Foundation, they have their podcast, Dickey's Doing Good. And she urged me, oh, you should do one for the ATO. Uh, you know, I've never, I've never done anything like that. And I was not that comfortable even talking on theirs because I'm not used to it. She planted that seed and I just kind of blew it off. And then I went to Dr. T's three-day seminar up in Frisco for the first training, the uh, peer support training. And they had a panel of 10 first responders, a combination of police and fire from agencies across the the you know, state and they all had critical incidents and talked about personal in, about injury, a physical injury and also mental injury from these injury, from these incidents. And then the recovery after, and she only gave each of them 10 minutes to talk about it. And as I was sitting there listening I was looking around at the room of how engaged all these other first responders were from all over the, the, the Metroplex, you know, from Grand Prairie to Salina to Garland PD, uh, Flower Mound, they were all there and nobody was looking at their phone. Everybody was engaged, staring at these first responders tell their stories. And I was thinking this right here could be a podcast. Well, I talked to Ed Lujan. He's our ATO chair. And he just said, good, go with it. I trust you. Just do it. Make it happen. Then I was like, well, shit. I don't know if I could do this by myself. I don't know what I'm doing. So... You know, one thing I'm, I do, I will credit myself on is I like to surround my, myself with intelligent people and, and people that can help make shit happen. So that's where I, I reach out to Misty, to Danny, Josh, you know, to work together on this. So that was like in June of uh, 2021. I remember sitting at the pool with a notepad brainstorming ideas for the name. You got to come up with a name. You got to come up with a mission, right? Yeah. You know, so what, what was that mission, I guess, or your idea, the direct idea this podcast is supposed to be for what? I wanted to give first responders, the first responder community, a platform and a stage to tell their story of critical incidents and also take a therapeutic approach to tell, talking about it, just talking about it. They may, there might be 10 other first responders are c- civilians that hear the story that may be struggling and they may take some two out of the 10 may take something from that story of how they dealt with uh, their incident and that may help somebody. And, you know, ATO, that's what the, that's what the foundation's for is helping first responders. But also I saw a need to, you know, uh, no pun intended bridge divides between, 
first responder, especially law enforcement, and communities. So I've got a lot of civilian friends that listen to this. And they reach out, and they don't understand the culture. I think that this podcast can not only help other first responders, but also help people outside of our culture understand this better and recognize what we go through and, and, and see that this, this shit's real. It's not something you watch on TV. These are actually real people going through these incidents, and they have to physically and mentally recover. And some people, years, for the rest of their life, they're never recovered from it. Yeah, um, definitely. Yeah. So I had to come up with a name. Not a lot of people know this. The first name that I was pretty much sold on was ATO and the Uphill Battle. I even had graphics made. That was going to be the name of this podcast. And then I was talking to some people and they said, nah, does that really, does that really suit your mission as far as uh, uh, what you're trying to accomplish with, uh, you know, bridging a gap with the community? Something positive out of it. Yes. Yeah. Rather than a constant struggle. And right. Yeah. Right. Constant struggle and negativity and just, you know, and yes, it is an uphill battle, but also <clears throat> you can't take a negative. You can't look at everything in a negative light. Otherwise that just, it would consume you. Right. There's got to be some positivity um, in, in what you're trying to do. So I settled on ATO bridging the divide and Danny, you're the only guy that I know that that is uh, incredible with sound, understands it, and I know how meticulous you are with everything you do. I reached out to you, asked you to do it, and I remember when I first asked you, it was only going to be temporary until I find somebody else. Well, here you are, and yeah. I, I can't tell you how much I appreciate you. Well, and real quick, I want to interject on that then, so I want to point out to everyone that the ATO is a nonprofit organization. Yes. And everyone here is volunteering their time. So no one's getting paid for any of this. You know, Misty, Josh, you, even the other people on the sidelines when they do stuff, Randy, you know, it's it's all volunteer. Even all, running all the social medias. I mean, it's there's all these little things that you had to do, you know, and, I, and yet Misty, Misty came on after her story, after her story, and after all the feedback I got from the great. Stop it. Fantastic Misty Van Curen. I was like, I need to get her ass on here. I need to get her on here to bring some intelligence to the to the podcast. <laughs> some art. Right. Yes. <laughs> and uh, you listen art. to her openings and you can, you can hear that. But I try to surround myself with good people, good friends, and people I care about. And I think by doing that, it's, it will call, it, it's going to make this be successful. And, you know, there's been times that I kind of wanted to walk away. And Randy's kind of. Already? Well, in the, before it got going, I was frustrated with oh, okay. a lot of things. Right. There was a lot of little things that were roadblocks that some people, I'm not going to mention names, were putting up to try to – negativity, being pessimistic about things. I don't like that. You can – if I have no room for negative and pessimistic people, okay? I'll cut them out of it. So I got urged by several people, uh, y'all included, to push forward, push forward, I had to figure out how to stream the shit and how to how to get it to all these other streaming platforms, which I'm not that smart of a person. So really, I had to do some re- a lot of research. So I knew from the get-go, Ed Lujan was going to be our first, right? Because his story was, I heard it in Dr. T's training, and it was just amazing, and it needed to be heard. And then I had no idea who else we were going to get 
as far as and what theme we I want it I want it to be a huge variety of of guests. I want I don't want to just have a bunch of crazy SWAT stories or narcotic stories or shootout stories. I want to have a personal side too. I want to have organizations and professionals that work alongside with law enforcement, like uh, like EMTs. I want to have doctors on. I want to have uh, uh, defense attorneys. You know, prosecutors on, uh, judges. I want to have a variety of people on that in the community, law enforcement and first responders, there is a connection to everybody, right? And I think that that's a way we can bridge divides and help people. If we can understand each other, I think that that will, that's where you're going to find the positivity with, with a, a project like this. And it is a big project. There's a lot of little things. Starting up social medias from scratch, buying a web, uh, an actual website for the deal. There was a lot of little things. Finding the right equipment. If people listen to the first first episodes to the ones we do now, you can tell we have different mics. And it's, and Danny, I know you, you know, make, it makes your life a lot easier. Yeah, easier than the pawn shop mics, I guess. Well, where are we at? Yeah, we we had cans. We were just talking in, in Campbell's soup cans. Yeah, to replace the mic. Yeah, we had Campbell's soup cans for an echo effect, and we had it just our our iPhone mics. We're recording shit, but that's how it started. Where do I want it to go? I I don't know really. I don't know how long this will go. Um, I'm having a lot of fun. I get connect. I'm st- staying connected with my true friends. And I'm meeting a lot of interesting people. You know, I, I'm not going to just get a bunch. I'm having a lot of my friends on because a lot of my friends are badasses and they got badass stories, right? But I'm going to have on some, I've already met a lot of interesting people that I've never met. Um, and I want to continue to do that. And I'm hoping that it will touch not just the first responder community, but also civilians. And I, and I believe it has. I can't tell you how many messages and uh, text messages or emails that I've received from people uh, from across the country, strangers, I don't even know. I've got female officer of West Virginia messaging me asking about what books Misty read to get in the warrior's mindset. And I'm responding to them. Several people have reached out saying, there's one officer, I'm not going to mention his name, and I'm not going to be as descriptive about what he said, but basically was struggling and on the fence about uh, – about seeking out help and he heard some episodes and that very next week he reached out to a therapist i think that's what it's about that's what my if you help help one person with a project like this is worth it that's what i want to continue to do i want to continue to grow i want to get better but we've done very well so far in a very short amount of time and i just think we should just keep doing what we're doing and i'm going to do it as long as uh as i can and and i feel it's productive nice yeah and i think it's it's been rewarding for us as well um, to see areas that we didn't think about affecting. You know, you think about the families of these first responders, and it's something for them to hear their loved one get on and tell their side of the story in a different way than maybe they're used to hearing because maybe their family member just doesn't talk that way at home about their incidents or what's going on in their head or their mind. And it's also some recognition there, and I, I think the families have also been vocal about how they appreciate this as well. It's therapeutic. Yeah. It's really hard sometimes to sit here next to somebody, across from somebody, that has gone through something so god awful, and absorb it like you like almost you're a therapist and see the pain and see their emotion and, and watch their physical reaction to when they're talking about their critical incident or 
an injury they had, you can see that many years later that it's actually still wrong. Yeah, physically affecting people. Oh, you, you yeah. see the handshake, you see the eyes widen, you see the tears come up. It's really, we'll go from laughing on this podcast to people breaking down us having to take breaks. It's hard. That's yeah. hard to do, but I think it's, but I've had people reach out and say, thank you for this. It was actually therapeutic. My family has heard this story in a different way. They didn't even know all the facts, and now they do. Now they understand it. So that's what this is about. And as long as as long as y'all keep carrying me on this, I'll keep doing it. <laughs> we'll, we'll do our best. Oh, thank you. I've enjoyed it. The job in legal, you still have that. You're yes, still at legal. I'm still full time in legal. Yeah, and I know I've seen you around a bunch training a lot mm-hmm. of the investigators on how to use the system and do this legal part correctly. I would say you have the most contact with the department now as compared to most officers, just because you get around dealing with these officers. There's obviously a generational difference in the cops we have now versus when we had back then. What's your view on what are those differences and good or bad? And if, if there is something bad, what's the advice to officers these days? Well, thanks for letting the listeners know that I get around. I appreciate it. <laughs> um, Any regrets? Yeah, yeah. No, no regrets. <laughs> Not to mention with the County too. I mean, yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, DA's office. You know, I, there's there's so many different investigative units from robbery to to sub to the substation has their property crime detectives to to people in narcotics. I've had the train and uh, homicide, uh, gang vice. I've I've had the train just about every detective on the department in these this case filing procedures, and I'm still doing. It. I had to make up manuals and um, and all these different. Um, these go-bys for people. When I first started it, I did not know the system. I had to learn them. And then I then I did an analysis of the problems that I found, and I made a manual that addressed those. And you wouldn't believe the resistance I got, from, especially the old detectives. And it goes back to the old shitty saying, this is the way we've always done it. I go, yeah, well, I'm finding you're screwing this up. I found a shitload of cases that are screwed up because of the way you've always done it. So... It's a big problem. And now, though, you know, and you got Detective uh, Green sitting down there. She knows. She she worked in legal for a stint. She's seen the problems as a whole for the department. And now you got detectives that are coming on, and you're breaking that mindset of the way we've always done it. And they're just kind of like, well, this is how we got to do it now. And you know what? In five years, we may look back and say, damn, Joe screwed that up. That He really messed that up, and this could be done better. And, yeah, I know that. There may be things, there's always something lying underneath the water, underneath the surface that some iceberg that could be sitting there waiting on you. But what I came up with and basically shoved down everybody's throats, I know from the, the issues that I've identified, this will help. So that's what I just kind of went with. And, and I've got a lot of friends on an apartment. And, you know, mo- for the most part, people have been accepting. They may go and talk shit, a lot of shit. I don't know what he's talking about. And then, you know, but that's okay. And I don't, like I said, I always usually consider, again, I consider the source. But it, it's been it's been difficult starting, but now it's just kind of, now it is the way we're doing it, right? And then a few years, they try to make changes. Well, this isn't how, this is, we've always done it this way. So I'm good with that. But to go to go back to your times in uniform, what we talked about a minute ago with how you see beyond just the arrest, right? You, that's the problem that I see with a lot of investigators is we're so focused on 
just our case and we never think about where it goes from here what happens to this division what where, what this does how this works how this fits in and that's where your vision has always come in and you say hey i got to educate them on hey this just affects more than just your case this goes a little further than that it's taken just a, a, a broader look at everything. I mean, I try to look at everything from a bigger picture as opposed to just small-minded thinking. It's like it's like some people drive and they don't look past the hood of their car, right? When we were out there convoying, which I know, Mark, that was one of your favorite things that we did, and Danny too. <laughs> I call it the hot roll. The hot, the roll. hot roll. We would go from dope house to dope house to dope house. Four cars in a line. We just all of a sudden hit the brakes and jump out and st- uh, yeah. a dead sprint and, and the fights on asses and, and elbows. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> that. That is turning a corner, like similar to turning a corner in a car, and then looking half block down and seeing the guy walking away from a house that you know is a dope house, right? And 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 working in, and working in legal, you look at a, a bigger picture as opposed to a, a case goes to from an, uh, the jail to an investigative unit, and then it goes up to the prosecu- the prosecutors. And if you don't have the finer points, if they're not sharp, once you get on the prosecutor, the case is going to fall apart. And then there's a lot of cases that are, there's some really bad dudes, and there's a lot of cases that they have pending from other offenses that are similar that they've done. So you just don't want them all to fall apart because you did some shoddy half-ass work in the in at the at the very beginning. It's, it's I like to I try, and it's really hard sometimes. I try to look at a, things at a bigger picture approach. So you plan on staying in legal, as far as you know? Nothing else coming uh, up in your mind? No, as of right now, I'm, I'm going to stay. Uh, there's there's nothing else on the department that I really I, – honestly, it, at this age and this time on, I don't want to go and start over somewhere and learn something all new. It That would just be too tiresome. And then uh, with the work, which I believe the really important work and fun work with the ATO and uh, the Dickey Foundation and also this podcast, and I'm working around some really good friends doing – doing this podcast and and that's by design uh, you know uh put people i uh, respect and care about you know in, in places so we can continue friendships and also because i know they'll get the job done mm. the one the one thing i wish you could do before you left us would be to pass this knowledge you have that you passed to me and danny and many other people and keep doing it for the newer generation come out i, I heard something interesting the other day i don't know how true this is but they say that a generation in police work is four years, right? So you think about it. How long have you been out of patrol right now? Since 2016. Yeah, so we've had a couple of generations, at yeah. least one, come through um, that have no idea about the things that you taught us, right? Uh, I wish we could somehow work that out where you could teach an uh, arrest, search, and seizure um, class with these new guys coming out and help them out. Can you teach uh – foot chases and jumping fences right right yeah, a lot and of that, class a's yeah in class a's you're losing half your buttons on a going over a fence um i i think i think the proactive style policing is, is kind of dying in our profession yes it, it's it's more reactive now than it's, i've ever seen it yes it's very intelligence based from the fbi so they drive these models with professors in high towers coming up with these ideas. Right. And it's all based on quantifiable numbers rather than really understanding context, which context comes from guys on the ground. Yes, and and that's what we did at Southeast there, especially at the end. We would we, we had all the intelligence. We gathered the intel, but then we went out and put it all together. It's like I mentioned that, that Ronnie uh, Walker crew, you know, Tiger, and, and that, that was 
that was really fun. Starting something that low level with, and there are some of the biggest heroin dealers in that, in that area at, at the time. And we started that and basically I got, you know, had to get DPS narcotics involved and, you know, our narcotics too. And, and it turned into something really big, but it all started with a bunch of jackasses and uniforms running around and it was fun. Um, I just don't see that style of policing from that position. And I know I've already, I've already preached. Don't let the, don't let your rank or your, you know, your title holds you back. But I think the way police are kind of uh, looked at right now and everybody's scared to make a mistake. And, and I I can't say I blame them. I mean, you you know, you go out and you want to help people, but you also, you don't want to get in trouble yourself trying to help out a stranger in a neighborhood that you're never going to live in. Right. And the only time you would actually even drive through some of these, these really bad neighborhoods is is because you're working and you have a pistol. Right. But I just don't, I don't know. Greg and I came on at a good time where where we would start, start off with rock droppers and we thought we're badass and high five. And and we ended up taking down total houses and, and that's where you get the big weight and the guns. And then we continue that on the, on the CRT. But then we had such a shift in the, in in the uh, perception of policing that we just decided, God, it's, it's not the time for this anymore. And I don't, and I, and I think the command staff, they want, they want arrest to be made, but I think the mindset of officers right now and that style of policing would be so hard because the risk versus the reward just is not is not what it used to be. And, it, and it's and in a lot of ways, it's not. I don't think it's as fun as it used to be. No, probably not. With that being said, I just have one last question for all this, then. and that is, you know, looking back at a long career full of stories, tragedies, successes, great relationships, and a lot of personal growth for all of us. Is there anything that you would change along your career timeline if you could go back and redirect it? And is there anything that gray-haired Joe King <laughs> would tell the younger Joe King, the track athlete? Yeah. <clears throat> so I would grab that young, cocky, 22-year-old Joe by the back of the neck and say, do everything that you did, right? Do it. Just be proud of what you did at work and be very proud of the friendships that you formed and, and you've maintained. Cause there's a lot of people that they can't hang on to a friend, you know, but I would say don't let this job consume you and, and don't obsess over uh, the job. Appreciate friends and family more when you're away from the job, right? You we're all a retirement away from being forgotten. And I always say that, and, and I really mean it. It doesn't matter what you've done. And, and this, this, there's a lot of people that sit around, they get pissed off the department. Oh, I'm just going to retire. I'm going to leave. I'm going to go work at Fort Worth. I'm going to go work at Mesquite. Hey, this this place has been in business since 1881. <laughs> this ball keeps bouncing. It, I mean, that, it, that might be the third line I'm always used to you saying. Hey, it's true, though. It's because there's I've, even there's some people that walk away and they think the walls are going to fall in. The. The seas are roar, and the, you know, and and the skies are gonna fall. It, it's they'll it, miss me. Yeah, they're gonna miss me. Nah, probably not. <laughs> they're even gonna remember you. And sadly, in our job, in in this profession, really, the only way you're remembered is if you get killed. I mean, really, you got memorials every year that come up, and and you get you get you get a uh, you get plaques on the wall, and you get portraits on the wall. But it's very sad uh, that that uh, somebody can put so long into a career. Um, and 
you really walk away and you got you got a bunch of war stories and you got a head full of trauma with your friends uh working but most of your family is kind of shielded from that right and it you you are you do kind of become forgotten it's like starting up this program nothing lasts forever okay and careers don't last forever but if you want to leave a legacy behind Try to do it with your friends and family that are that will be with you past this job, especially if you you know to mothers and and uh, fathers out there. Like your kids are your legacy, right? And now I got Carmen; she's my legacy. So that would be the only thing I would say is appreciate and spend more time with uh, with the people, friends, and family that are away from the job. But there's not a lot I would change. Maybe like I said, I would go back and change if I was a senior corporal become a senior corporal just just for movement but i think it worked out fine for me and i'm happy with with um my body of work i like that answer i don't want to steal your line do you want to say it that this is a i think this is a perfect way to wrap it up yeah i want to thank everybody for listening i want to thank you for all the support uh everybody in this uh, room here i love them to death and I I can't thank everybody enough for everything, and that's a wrap. Well, Joe, I I just want to say thank you for a few of the best years I've probably had on the department. Thank you for your guidance and your leadership in your own form and fashion. And thank you for continuing our friendship throughout these years. You're someone I've always looked to as a mentor, even after those years on the team. Misty had a lot of great quotes from a lot of people that were spot on as far as you as a not just a cop but a person thank you for asking me to be a part of this podcast because it's a project you have and it's been rewarding to work with friends and be a part of this yeah and I'll piggyback on that man I I really appreciate the fact that uh, we got you know so long to work together and uh, you're easily the best cop I've ever worked with uh, it's not even close, and an even better friend. And I uh, appreciate you uh, inviting me up here to take part of this. It was awesome. Would you like to know what your little mini me says about you? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> little Princess Carmen? Sure. He is the best dad because he takes me to funner places like Kathy's Critters and Kids Empire. And he's very strong. Those are all very, very accurate <laughs> points she's <to> made. <laughs> Love you, Joe. Love you. Love you. Thanks for your service. Hey, brother, hey, sister, I'll never give up on you. Hey, Mrs., hey, mister, I'll see this all the way through. sun and the moon I'll never give up on you Down when you're lonely I'll pull you up Life leaves you heavy when the going gets tough I'll be your shoulder Together we'll run up from the bottom Hey brother, hey sister, I'll never give up on you Hey Mrs. Hey Mr. 
Never give up